Good to see you. Today, I am going to talk about honesty, courage, and wholeness. Last time I just did a normal talk, I deliberately went by the lectionaries so I would kind of bump myself off some of the main things that I normally talk about. This time I'm just going back to the things But, you know, really, I, I, what just um, said with the help of Adam Watt is exactly what I want to talk about, some of the honesty. And uh, I've got a tiny bit of a ring here. Here we... I don't know if that's... Something, should I talk further from the mic, maybe? No? Okay. Um, but beautiful stuff, and I love that book. I am a mod. And, and honesty is really what I want to talk about. Here's the thing where, where things are at sort of in, in life for me uh, right now. After, after a couple years that were a little quieter because of, of COVID and some of the changes at school where I was um, in, in 20 and 21, I was kind of finally not doing more stuff than I wanted to do. Um, then, then this last year that we've just finished has, has gone back to being super full and intense uh, with lots of uh, responsibilities and so on. And so now's the time in the year when I can sort of slow down and, and think a little more spaciously. And uh, so one of the things I like to do at this particular time of year is to reflect a little bit on, on some of the things that have gone on in the year uh, that have kind of risen to the, the top and that just seem continually to be important. And, and here are some of the things, and uh, uh, I know at least some of them will be familiar to you, probably from some talks or other places where you've had conversations with me, but here, here are, are five things that I've been reflecting on. One is uh, a line from Dr. Bessel van der Kock. I'm not sure how many of you know him, he's one of the best known trauma therapists, and he sums a lot of things up with this line when he says, to be whole, you have to feel what you feel and know what you know. To be healed, to be whole, you have to feel what you feel and know what you know. And if you think about that for a while, you can think about all the reasons that we sometimes don't want to feel what we feel or know what we know. So that's one thing. Um, and then, you know, trauma healing is a, is a part of what I do in, in various parts of my work, either teaching related to it or, or in my counseling office. And one of the ways in which things seem to continually come in focus for me is is that more and more I feel like I can sum up my job as creating a safe space in which others can be courageous enough to be honest. So that feels like the, the thing that I want to be doing in my counseling office is to create a space in which people can be courageous enough to be really honest about their lives. Uh, and the third thing is a phrase, and um, I'm, I'm sure I've talked about this a few times here, it's this phrase that I've been wanting to explore and, and write about. It's this idea of a compassionate consent to reality. That one of the things we want to do um, in our spiritual growth, in our prayer, or, or our reading, or our just reflecting on life, is to be compassionate with ourselves, be compassionate with others, in a way that, again, lets us be consenting to what is real. To start off with, with life the way it it actually is, and if we're going to bring change, we have to start from the real and the now, 
not starting from something that doesn't exist. And I actually stumbled on a phrase from someone else, I actually forgot his name right now. Um, I think he's saying the same kind of thing, and, and I love his phrase better. He says, a long, loving look at the real, which I really like. A long, loving look at the real. And that's what he thinks uh, um, contemplative practices are all about. I've talked a lot about truth. It's been a really important thing to me. For someone who, um, apologies to, uh, to Dr. Van S. Is he here right now? Did he go up? Oh, there you are. Right there. Um, we haven't mentioned that here yet, have we? Congratulations to someone who's here. just keep, you know, uh, becoming important. And, uh, and so years ago when I um, started openly critiquing the idea of, of absolute truth as not helpful, um, sometimes people would say to me, uh, oh, you don't believe in truth. And I went, no, 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 I really, really believe in truth. It's just differently, you know. Um, and so felt the need to define it differently. And so this is how I've been defining it for quite a few years now that truth is bearing honest witness to our experience. Truth is more about honesty than it is about facts and, and about objectivity. Truth is about being honest about our, our life and what we really think and what we really feel. So I was using that in class, and, and the reason this one came back to me is a student wrote back, and I've been sort of taking this definition for granted, and he, he wrote back, and he's from a really, he's an international student from a hard place, and he said, I just wanted to let you know how valuable this definition was for me and how it says so much in so little space. And he said it reminded him of Nietzsche, which I don't always want to be. <laughs> but he said, Nietzsche said um, that a lie is not wanting to see what you see. That that's what he calls a lie, not wanting to see what you see. Um, so that gets kind of to the same, same side of things. Then the one other reflection that contributed to this is uh, also from a student's paper in, in, um, that I was grading just before I left on holidays, and he uh, referred me to a podcast in which uh, a hospice doctor was referring to his growing awareness that so, so many people before they died would have these really intense dreams and visions. And so real that, that that's why he uses the term visions, because people felt them as real, they didn't feel like they were dream dreams, but something kind of in between a dream and, and, and something more uh, intense like a vision. And he said, um, most of these dreams are positive, but, although some of them are really hard. And the student wrote, it just struck me how much these experiences were like what we talked about with trauma healing. Like these are about facing reality and about getting forgiveness and about giving forgiveness. and. And so I went and I listened to the podcast, and it's fascinating stuff. And one of the things that I was struck by is this interesting natural need to be healed before you die. And I was thinking, like, from a non-religious point of view, like, if you just think about it, you know, sort of reflecting, observing on, on life, like, how do you make sense of that? Like, what is it? that makes it so naturally important that this thing happens that's kind of built into us that we get some of these healing things that happen to us that help us face reality, be more honest, 
let go of hurts, you know, before we die. It's fascinating to think about. Uh, so Dr. Christopher Kerr is uh, K E R R is the is the doctor. If anyone wants to look up, he's got a TED talk as well. So those are some of the things that contributed to this talk on honesty, courage, and and wholeness. And I don't have many slides, but I just wanted some excuse to to show a few pictures, uh, not normal travel pictures, but some of the quirky pictures from my trip. So this one is. There's a bronze sculpture in the St. Pancras train station in London that I just love. It's by a guy Paul Day. And it's just all around, there's these relief scenes in, in bronze that are full of depth perception and interesting observations in life. And, uh, anyway, so this picture doesn't really mean much of anything, but I just, I just liked it. And, and the dog, it was really fascinating because um, you see this, the, you can tell from the nature of bronze what's being touched a lot. And this dog is a completely different color than anything else. It's just kind of polished gold because so many people are petting the dog. I just thought that was amazing. Um, anyway, irrelevant. <laughs> Honesty is incredibly hard. That's what I want to say. Thanks for being honest. <laughs> Honesty is just incredibly hard work. There's so much fear that gets in the way. We're social beings, and we're so scared that we're not as good as others, or that we're being left out, that we'll be rejected if people knew the truth, or that things happen to us that we don't want to face. These are all fundamental human fears, and they all make it so hard for us to be honest about our experience of life. We're also so tempted by hypocrisy and self-deception. So I referred before to when I started being critical openly of the idea of absolute truth. Um, I remember some of those times were the times that the heckling got real <laughs> in the church here when I started doing some of that up here. Um, that was, those were fun. <laughs> I, I never cared whether there was any such thing as absolute truth, um, theoretically. I just cared that we shouldn't pretend that we know it. And that when we use the language as if we do know it, um, or our side knows it, or our people know it, that we're just playing this game to try to gain some power over other people, pretending that's not helpful. And so it was ironic that, uh, so that was, you know, about 20 years ago I started doing that, and, and it's felt ironic since then that some of the people who are so loudly defending absolute truth have now spent years spreading lies and disinformation freely in order to protect their interests. Uh, always found that strange. But we are so tempted by hypocrisy, so maybe it shouldn't be strange. So we might be those fundamentalists who pretend to emphasize absolute truth and then don't care about telling the truth or not about what's happening right in front of us. Or we might be justice activists who emphasize that truth is not objective fact but socially constructed and then the next minute we demand that others agree with our social constructions as if they were the only truth that there is and pretend that the reason is science. So all of a sudden we switch from our social constructions to becoming rigid objectivists with new absolute truths. It's hard. It's hard being consistent with our honesty. So a bit of Jesus. John 8. Jesus said one of my favorite lines from Jesus. He said, uh, he said this to followers who trusted him. 
he said in my paraphrase, you'll start to see, you'll start to perceive, you'll start to experience the truth, what's honest and sincere, and that honesty will set you free. It will liberate you. Jesus is clearly not talking about holding to a doctrine. He's not talking about getting your truths right according to some statement. No, doc, no dogma will set you free. Having beliefs won't liberate you. But accepting the honest truth of your experience will set you free. Knowing what you know, feeling what you feel. Consenting to reality, taking a long, loving look at the real. These things can make us whole and free. These words of Jesus come after he refers to himself as the light of the world, as one who lives in a way that dispels darkness. Again, not with the doctrine, but because he shows us a way that we don't need to live with lies and cover stories. That we can talk to God and each other the way Adam tries to teach us how to pray. And later in John 8, Jesus talks about the father of lies, and he's talking about the devil, the accuser, the one who judges and accuses, making us accuse ourselves and others, <clears throat> the opposite of bearing compassionate witness to our lives and the lives of others. Many years ago, I think it was in seminary, I stumbled on a book, uh, one of these happy accidents, by a biblical scholar named Dan Villa, someone I've never heard of since, so, uh, so he wrote this one piece that I loved, uh, but I haven't heard a lot of them out there. And this book is called Self-Deception and Wholeness, in Paul and Matthew. And he talks about how the good news, one of the central pieces of it is, is that it can free us from this need for self-deception. So at the center of the good news, he says the message and experience of the welcome of God makes it possible for us to give up the cover stories that we use to protect ourselves from the truth instead of accepting the truth. The truths that were frail, weak, People who often screw up and whose family, culture, and people are often wrong about a lot of stuff. So Dan Mia writes that life happens and we get faced with evidence that things that we want to believe are wrong. And this creates cognitive dissonance in us. This uncomfortable experience that feels very, very threatening. Life is poking holes through our cover stories our poor attempts to pretend that we're better than we are, that we know more than we do. So what do we do when our cover stories are, are being threatened, when we're feeling this cognitive dissonance? The number one thing he suggests is that we try to win converts, double down, <laughs> stake our claim, and try really hard to get others to back us up so that we have more confidence in the stories that we're being doubted and questioned. So let me invite us all to ask ourselves this question. The next time that we're so frustrated with others and getting desperate about converting others to our point of view, are we just protecting our cover stories? Is there something we're not facing? Some doubts, some questions, some fears? So our wholeness, he suggests, begins with accepting the gracious welcome of God, that we're loved and connected and forgiven from the start. We don't need cover stories to avoid facing an honest look at ourselves. 
Can we let ourselves hope and believe that to be true? Can we show each other, remind each other, remind ourselves that that's true? But in the meantime, our cover stories are not only pretenses that are messing us up, but they also are dividing us. Our cover stories will scapegoat and hurt others, not just us. We wrap these cover stories around our identities and fight for them, turning us against them. So what are these precious cover stories that tend to be close to our identity as individuals and groups? Here's another sneaking in of a picture from our trip. So this is, this is a cathedral in Milan where we hadn't been before. I personally think it's the ugliest thing I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. It, like what's the cover story there? Like, why would you do that? What are you trying to communicate to the world? If you, that does not look like a welcoming building. That does not look like a warm place. <laughs> it looks like I'm going to impose our power on all of you who look at us. That's what it looks like to me. I'm sorry if I'm projecting something. But, <laughs> but I thought of this and I just thought of Shrek, you know, like someone was compensating for something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so that's not really the point of what I'm talking about. But what are the, what are the cover stories that we have that we wrap around our identity? So I think cover stories are things like this. They've been things like church doctrine. State statements of faith, especially the ones that we insist on, the ones that we have killed to protect, or more recently, because we haven't done that much of the killing to protect our beliefs for a while, we've gotten a little bit better at not doing that, maybe. Hmm. Or more recently, that, we're, that we fearfully defend in our boardrooms, etc. I've been in discussion with so many people these last couple of years from who have been a part of churches or groups in which the board is doubling down to kick out those who are affirming. Um, my own background, I was uh, raised in some Mennonite churches and the Mennonite Brethren Church is, is the denomination in which most of my higher education took place. And just in the last few years, six of those churches in Canada have been kicked out of their denomination. It tends to be churches where I know people and have friends. I'm sure that's a coincidence. <laughs> uh, uh, so I've been hearing about a lot of them. And, uh, you know, sometimes with great hurt and disruption. The Southern Baptists just kicked out two churches because their pastors were women. Seriously, 2023. Gee, I wonder what country that happened in. <laughs> yeah, we probably don't have to say. But, but one, of them, one of them was the Saddleback Church, like this huge mega church, the one that Rick Warren, you remember Rick Warren was the pastor of? Well, apparently when he handed things off, um, among those he handed off to was a woman, and she uh, clearly would be leading the whole church, thousands of people astray, so they had to kick her, her up. The other church they kicked out is this church in Kentucky, where this woman has been a pastor for 30 years. 30 years, and now they realize, oh my goodness, what's happening there? We've got to kick them out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a little mind-blowing. It probably does. But these are not the kind of actions that uphold truth. These are not the kind of actions that uphold honesty. These are the kind of actions that desperately try to preserve a cover story that prevents them from being honest about their experience. 
All our rightness and certainty about political systems are also cover stories. Our passionate commitments to ideologies. I would suggest that any commitment to an ideology or doctrine is an enemy of honesty about our experience. That any commitment to ideology or a doctrine is an enemy of honesty about our experience. Any ideology or counter-ideology, you know, the, sometimes we want to rightly criticize one ideology and we use another ideology to do it and start becoming an adherent of that. And so any of these things on, on the right or on the left, um, these, uh, sorry, I lost my place. Um, they, they all become filters to us that distort what we're seeing and experiencing in order to make it fit a mold. So I think this is even true for new doctrines around controversial understandings like sexuality and gender. So quite rightly, we've deconstructed the rigidities around many traditional understandings that were harming people. But often we haven't been content with a flexible humility based on love. And so now, you know, particularly in places like social media or news, you see proclamations where people are told that if they don't accept new beliefs, ideologies, or doctrines around sexuality, then they're hateful bigots, as if they can't possibly be loving and yet disagree with us. So anytime that people have to believe a certain thing in order to be okay, then honest truth is going to be a casualty. And then of course there are many more personal cover stories. The ones that we tell ourselves, the ones that families tell ourselves in order to protect ourselves from facing the truth and the brokenness that is there. So wholeness, I believe, is honestly getting free from those cover stories. We're liberated, as Jesus says, when we experience what is honest and real about our lives. So I've, uh, as I said at the outset, I've become increasingly um, confident in, in my work that therapy is about creating a space in which there is enough courage and safety to be honest about one's life. And friends can be that therapy and that healing space for each other when they help do that. And church can be that, I hope. Because honesty is incredibly hard. It's vulnerable and requires acceptance of all of our weaknesses and mistakes and shame and not knowing of things. And acceptance of our mortality is probably part of the honest truth that we sometimes don't want to face. The truth that we're all headed for a physical death. Truth requires courage and lots of humility. We're so much more honest when we admit how much we don't know. The good news of Jesus is that God is right now so welcoming and loving that we can risk that kind of truth. We don't need to defend systems of doctrine. We don't need false certainties about the controversies of our day. We don't need to fight our enemies who disagree with us. I disagree with myself all the time. Why should I have trouble loving someone who disagrees with me? In fact, I was thinking about that during that song, about having a war with them. Yeah, I've got that someday. Lots of disagreement. We can even work together and have fun together with people we disagree with. We can even live with people we disagree with. We can accept the disagreement with people we love is a part of bearing honest witness to our experience. God's welcome, Jesus' invitation is to live in the light of truth 
of honesty about ourselves and our experience without a cover story to protect ourselves. We can courageously live in the humble risk of that honesty. Our invitation as a community is to keep walking toward that kind of humble, courageous honesty with ourselves and each other in a way that we make it a little easier for each other to do that. If we're honest about ourselves with what a mix of good and bad we all are, we'd have an easier time loving our enemies. And I think that would mean we'd have an easier time loving ourselves too. So I told myself if I behaved and did a good job uh, and gave myself time, I would tell a story. And then I would also post this picture, which also has nothing to do with anything. I, I love this picture so much. You have no idea how much I love this picture. Right? This was right outside our hotel in Monterosso in, in Italy. And if I went like 10 feet to the left, the picture would be ugly. This is, this is the porch of a mini mart, like a little like, convenience store that was, that was busy. And somehow, because there's something weird about Italy. Things can be falling apart and gorgeous all at the same time. It's this Italian knack. I don't know what it is. So, I mean, like you can see, like that wall's crumbling, probably needs painting, but you would never look at it and think it needs painting. It just looks gorgeous. And, uh, and this table's an old rickety metal thing, but they painted it this lovely bright color, and this cat posed for me uh, as I was walking by, so. Um, yeah, anyway, nothing to do again with anything, but, um, but I want to tell you a story. Um, uh, apologies to those of you who who've heard this uh, from me, but because it has to do with me whining about my body and falling apart and being old and that kind of thing. So, so we, we, we went on this trip. Uh, one of the reasons we chose the kind of trip that we did was um, not sure how many walking holidays I had left in me. Like, we love to do walking holidays and, and ramble and some of the English footpaths and things like that. So that was the first half of our of our holiday, first time that we've been out there without uh, students, you know, without people to take care of. It was, it was kind of fun. Yeah, of course we miss having the company sometimes. But, uh, but uh, you know, one year I have a bad knee and the next year I have a bad back and you know, everything else. It's like, I think I can do a walking holiday now. Quick, let's get one in. But I was worried about my knee. I have a torn meniscus and uh, uh, you know, a year ago I would not have been doing many kilometers in a day, and, and I've had a more chronic bad back that sometimes is okay. It's usually okay if I walk in the morning, less so in the afternoon. But I thought, I could do it. Uh, I only did one test walk before I left. We did one 10 kilometer walk in Fredericton, and I uh, survived, and I thought, yes, I'm ready. Should have done more, but. Anyway, we got to England, we're averaging 16, 18 kilometers a day on hills. <laughs> so, Okay, um, but I did, I did really well. I was, I was really uh, happy with, with my body and all its aging parts. And um, until it was our last day in England and we were uh, staying on uh, the top of a big hill. So in order to see anything, you have to go all the way down the hill. So we wanted to go see the, the village at the bottom and, and have supper in a pub down there. And um, so I was like, that means walking all the way down. All the way back up again. It's like, okay, I'm really tired, but I think we can do this. Um, so I did it, and uh, as we're going down, um, getting a really sore ankle, brand new spot. <laughs> None of my old concerns. This is like right on, on top of this here, it's just starting to get really sore. A very strange thing never had happened before. 
and uh, um, you know just get through. And but now I'm down the hill, so there's no option, right? Uh, so it was not getting better. So I just had to kind of limp my way back up the hill, and and it felt like here's my Google diagnosis. I think I think I either tore or strained the the tendons on the top of the ankle. So kind of like a sprained ankle, except not in the joint. So you can actually move it a lot easier, but it was on, on top of the ankle. Um, anyway, so the next five days were tough for, for me for, for walking, but fortunately the hard walking was all done. We had more train riding to do, uh, you know, just kind of mild flat walking in Paris, only eight kilometers. <laughs> Carol's keeping track on her phone all the time. Over them. And, um, and, it, and it's just, it's getting harder and harder and I'm feeling more and more of a need to to back off, and I knew when we get to Italy, we're meeting with three of Carol's siblings. They can walk with Carol. I don't have to mess up her holiday. I can sit back, put my my feet up, and uh, so so I did that. It took a couple uh, quieter days. Um, it maybe is helping a little, but it's it's still over, overall pretty sore. Um, and it, it's not like I'm not getting around. Like I'm still moving. It's just it hurts all the time while I'm doing it. And then. We, we go out to supper and we're eating in this place that's got this, this because everything's on a slope, right? And, and this coastal town in Italy. And, and so the, the supper terrace where we're eating was on a slope and every five or six steps there would be a step. So I missed one with my good ankle. So it's like twisted, right? And then in order to save that ankle, which was fine, I landed super hard on the sore ankle and extended it exactly in the way that I've been trying to protect it and I extend it. And oh my goodness, did that sucker hurt. So I limp out of there, I'm trying to pretend I'm tough, right, and I'm not going to say anything to, because we're with her siblings and gang of us, we're walking home, we had to walk half a kilometer home, and I'm like, I screwed up, <laughs> I just ruined things, I'm thinking, I'm going to have to go to some clinic, I'm not going to be able to walk these next days at all, I mean, it really hurt. And I limped home. Can feel it start to swell up. Um, they're dawn, so they play cards. I put my feet up, put it on ice, and um, and I just get through the evening um, with lots of Advil and ice, and doing thinking thinking I ruined the rest of the trip. You know, for for me, it's about four or five days left. Next morning, I get up and team bit sore, but not bad. Not much more worse than than before that. By that evening, it was basically done. Like, it, like I'm convinced that that stumble fixed my foot. <laughs> like, I think it was healing first in a way that was all tightened up and wrong, hmm. and it, and I needed to like give it a good hard yank. This is all a story to match what Brenda said. You know. <laughs> First, the truth hurts, and then it and then it can heal. Like I think I had to do the really hard thing, and and that healed it. It's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. But like a few days later, it was like it never had happened. Like all those other days in between, it was just swelling up all all day when I would walk. It you have this big swollen ankle, and all of a sudden it's good. It's just bizarre. So sometimes we have to do the hard thing, and it hurts first but the healing that comes from it is very life-giving. I don't know if that connected with the talk at all. I just wanted to tell you about my ankle. I look at my cat. It's not my cat, it feels like my cat. 
I think we're done. Yeah, have a great day.